In June of 1944, General Dwight D. Eisenhower issued one of the most historic wartime statements in history. He addressed the soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force at the onset of Operation Overlord, the largest seaborne invasion in history on the beaches of Normandy. D-Day, as we would come to know it. And Eisenhower would famously write, you are about to embark on the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And in company with the brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the eliminations of Nazi tyranny over oppressed people of Europe, and the security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together in victory. And I have full confidence in your courage your devotion to duty and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck. and Let us beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. A powerful, powerful message on what would be a day that would live in infamy. General Eisenhower has called his troops to prepare for the battle. He warns them of the savage nature of the enemy, but he assures them of the complete confidence he has in victory. In a similar way, in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is marshalling the Lord's army to ready themselves for spiritual warfare by taking up the whole armor of God so they might stand against the unrelenting foe of Satan and his forces. So how does the Apostle Paul envision then, as he's been writing his epistle to the Ephesians, how does he envision the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the temple of the Lord, this new society, this new humanity, this new Jew and Gentile people of God, indwelt by God's Spirit? How does he envision them to not topple when the winds of temptation blow hard? What instructions, what hope will he provide to this end? Well, as we'll observe in the text this morning, as we consider these verses before us in chapter 6, we'll see first the call to prepare for the battle in verses 10 and 11. We'll note the call to be fully aware and have great and deep knowledge of the enemy themselves in verse 12. And then we'll consider the call to fight with divine weaponry, unmatched, unparalleled weaponry in verses 13 through 17. Before we go any further, let's ask God's Spirit to help. Father, would you aid us as we hear these words from the Apostle Paul, soften every one of our hearts, awaken within us 
the reality of spiritual warfare and what it is to which we've been called as the army of the Lord begin in my heart and extend it to every soul here this morning that we would hear and obey. Provide hope to the discouraged and the faint-hearted this morning. May they know what indeed the gospel has done for the good of your people and for the strengthening for the war at hand. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Paul's letter is coming to a close, and just as he masterfully unveiled the mystery of the gospel in the first three chapters in Ephesians, he has masterfully unveiled in chapters 4 through 6 how it is that Christians ought to live their lives in light of it. Walking worthy of our calling means speaking truth and love to even the hardest of people. Putting on the new self involves being renewed in the spirit of our minds. It gives no opportunity for the devil. It puts away falsehood. It forgives one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. The new self walks in love as children of light. It hates impurity and evil speech. It makes the best use of the time because the days are evil. It is our union with Christ that produces a love that addresses one another, even as we have this morning in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to to God. And this new humanity understands how to submit to the Lord, even as we submit to human authorities within the divinely ordered structures of marriage and the household and the workplace, as we considered last week. But finally, Paul begins to wrap things up, and he does so by alerting God's people to the reality of spiritual warfare. Now, before launching into verse 10 this morning, let's get a bit of a canonical backdrop, a a whole Bible look at where Paul might be coming from to help us situate and contextualize the metaphor and the language with which he's leading us into. As we read our Bibles, we find different images, different metaphors, different analogies, even mental pictures that are created that describe the people of God. Some images are tender, sheep being carried by a shepherd, small children being provided for by the Lord, baby birds being watched over under the protection of God's feathers, as it were, and other such tender images. However, there are other, more militant and forceful images used of God's people. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, the word for church, ecclesia, is used to refer to various kinds of assemblies. The word means to gather. And it refers to many different kinds to which Israel was engaged in. Israel assembled for worship before the Lord at Mount Sinai. And before the Lord's presence at the, tab- at the tabernacle and the temple. But they also assembled for war. In fact, a war assembly, or we might say a war church, was not an uncommon thought in the minds of God's people under the Old Covenant. And at the forefront of this war church was the Lord of armies the Lord of hosts, whose presence was to lead his people into conquest before the pagan nations, expanding his glory to the ends of the earth. And as we move into the New Testament, 
this war church, this war assembly gathers in a different way. Not on a literal field of battle with actual sword spears and shields, but as one unified people of God under a new covenant. As a new humanity to wage spiritual warfare against the forces of evil for the glory of heaven's king. So although it may feel and oftentimes appear to us as if the church is, is this little small battalion holding a position against countless millions fighting against it, the promise of Christ in Matthew 16 paints a different picture. Indeed, it is the gates of hell that will not prevail. They will not stand those old rusty gates. They will buckle and collapse before the invading, offensive, gospel-proclaiming advancements of the Lord's army. We go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ our Lord. A line from a hymn we sing regularly. And as nation after nation is reached with the good news of Christ crucified and risen, the spiritually dead are raised to new life. For we proclaim the King has ascended heaven's throne. He has. He is there now installed as heaven's King. There's a new order. This is good news. He is presently reigning. This is fact. It's not a nice idea to consider. And for all who repent of their willful allegiance to the serpent, there is new life and there is new armor. In the imaginative and illustrative world of C.S. Lewis, all who awaken from the spell of the white witch and allow Aslan, the true king of Narnia, to breathe on them the breath of life, they will find both joy of living under one who has died on the stone table so they might live, but also find themselves engaged on the battlefield of warfare against the white witch herself. For lo, her doom is sure. And as the Lord's army that has assembled for war to advance his glory and his kingdom in the earth, Paul desires that they ready themselves in preparation for the battle. We see this in verses 10 and 11, call to prepare for the battle. We read, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, verse 10 begins with this word, finally, indicating a final turn in Paul's thinking as he hits the gas toward the finish line of this epistle. Paul's about to deliver his most pointed and perhaps most penetrating counsel to this new society organized around the charter that is Christ's finished work for his people and the Spirit's new life within them. Paul has toggled back and forth between external threats and internal threats against the church in chapters 4 through 6. At times, he's concerned that believers speak the truth in love and build one another up internally, fighting bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slanderous speech. But at other times, he wants us to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. And, and by our good works, the church ought to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. 
Still at other times, the gaze is inward, calling wives and husbands and children and parents to submit to one another because they cherish Christ above all else. Then at other times, Paul directs believers to obey earthly masters who are over them as they would Christ. And here, Paul seems focused outward to the battle awaiting every believer. Unlike the Roman army, which would only employ some of its of Rome's citizens in physical warfare, every person who is a member of the new people of God are called to spiritual military service. Verse 10 stands as a kind of a header overarching the following verses throughout verse 20. To be strong in the Lord should not lead us to believe that we must make ourselves strong in the Lord. No, the verb here is a, carries the idea that's better rendered by the Christian Standard Version, be strengthened, be strengthened by the Lord. So make no mistake about it, Christian, preparing for battle begins with receiving your strength exclusively from the Lord. There's not a dig down deep, find a reservoir of, of inner fortitude and, and muster up the courage that you can get this done. This is a being strengthened, availing yourself of the grace that is yours and the strength that is yours. The limitless, supernatural, divine strength of the God of armies is yours. Verse 11 begins with the call to put on the whole armor of God. Appropriating this divine gift is how we prepare for combat. While appropriating this gift begins at salvation, it is a daily work as we walk in the light, as we walk in love, as we imitate God, as we speak the truth in love, as we live spirit-controlled lives. To put on engenders naturally the idea of putting on a piece of clothing. Paul tells the Colossians to put on compassion and kindness and humility. He tells the Romans to put on the armor of light. He tells the Thessalonians to put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. It seems quite logical that Paul's words in Ephesians 4 to put on the new self is one in the same with this call here to now put on the armor of God. This complete set of armor is intended to assure us that every part of us is covered. And for good reason, because in the second half of verse 11, it tells us why we must wear this armor. Because, so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In verse, the end of verse 11, preparing for battle involves suiting up for combat with armor that will allow a soldier to not fall in the face of crafty, well-planned attacks. So spiritual stability in the face of temptation and in the face of Satan's fine-tuned strategies is what is in view. Satan has no need to reinvent the wheel. He is really refined and really good. P. 
people tend to die every so often, if you notice, and he carries on with his mission, and his, his tactics are effective. There is no temptation, but what is common to man, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life, they trigger all manner of wickedness and draw forth the wickedness within the human heart. Now, let's be clear on something. While Satan was more crafty than any beast in the garden, and he remains the prince of the power of the air, deceiving and blinding men and women day after day. And while we ought to never underestimate his subtleties, let's also forget one very clear principle. Sin makes us stupid. Sin makes every person stupid. Oftentimes I hear people say, well, I'd I'd never do such and such or such a sin because, hey, you know, I mean, it's so obvious if you think it out. You know, look at this and this and this and this that happens. Just think about it. I mean, I'd never do such and such. And I think in my mind, that's been the, the rationale of every person who has ever made shipwreck of their faith. Sin is inherently irrational. It makes no sense. Sin doesn't do a careful cost-benefit analysis. It wants what it wants, and it slowly forgets the cost and the consequences involved. It's like those emails by some Saudi prince that people get, that he's been taken hostage in some foreign land, and unless you wire him $1,200 right now, uh, you know, he's going to be killed or something. And you, you, out of all the people in the world, are who he needs. You you think about that. You're like, you have got to be kidding me. Would anyone fall for that? They work, apparently, because they keep happening, (laughs) right? It is utterly irrational, similarly speaking, the way sin poisons and distorts and twists our thinking. It's not a matter of logically working our way through. It's a matter of the heart. And when carefully considered Sin is beyond foolish, and yet it's highly effective. This being the case, we need to be strengthened for this battle from God's infinite reservoir of power so that we might stand against these effective schemes of the devil. Our preparation for battle is incomplete if we do not study the enemy we are up against. So this is seen more clearly in verse 12. We read in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And though Satan uses flesh and blood to carry out his evil plans, ultimately the struggle goes far beyond what you and I can see or feel or touch Jesus confirmed this in John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. This term wrestle or struggle is the only occurrence here of this word in the New Testament. It was, however, commonly referred to in the sport of wrestling in the first century. The use of this word here probably is used to highlight the the hand-to-hand combat, the close contact a believer will have in his fight against sin. Every believer can relate to this. 
Every true believer knows the visceral feel of fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul writes to the Corinthians of how he beats his body into submission, lest by any means, after preaching to you, I myself would be rejected. And yet, even this physical outworking involves a spiritual reckoning with a battle beyond what is seen or felt. Paul does not want his followers to mistake him calling for a little restored war church. He's going for something different. He does not aim his sights at recreating the theonomy like Israel of old. No, the capturing of governments and the crusade-like military conquest in hopes of creating the prospect of a Christian nation is not Paul's intent. Rather, our enemy are those rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a beloved English pastor from the last century, noted how he believed one of Satan's great tactics, and thus the Apostle Paul's great relevance for us today, is to proclaim who our enemy is in an age that has denied his existence altogether. Lloyd-Jones notes how our making sense of life's problems that assail us always seem to go to the psychological or the material to such a degree that Satan's fiery darts, how we even hear that, those terms, and spiritual forces of darkness, this seems like drawn straight from Harry Potter or some medieval era hocus-pocus that has no actual appearance in the world, real world, right? That notion alone is a powerful scheme of Satan. Our opposition coordinated by Satan, the God of this age who blinds the eyes of unbelievers, is not one powerful supernatural force, but a whole range of evil spiritual forces of varying rank, authority, and capabilities, Paul would have us see. Rulers and authorities are Paul's most common expressions for the demonic spirits already referenced in Ephesians 1, over whom Christ has pronounced his victory later in the epistle. Cosmic powers of this present darkness is a unique expression used only here in the New Testament, but seems to refer to the, the breadth of Satan's grip upon this in its moral darkness. Paul may have in mind the common nature of dark magic or witchcraft prevalent in Ephesus. We're not sure to be exact, but this may be the darkness that some Ephesian believers themselves had been delivered from. These spiritual forces of evil, of which he writes, they reside in an unseen spiritual world known to Paul as the heavenlies. And it is there that we are called to wage war. But how? How? So in the remainder of the text this morning, let's consider piece after piece God's gracious provision of how he intends that his war church go to battle so that they might stand. So let us fight with divine weaponry, considering 13 through 17. We read, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand. Hear the theme. 
Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The call here to stand is repeated or to take up or to put on the whole armor of God It has the same purpose, that we may stand or withstand the assaults in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Verse 14 begins in this manner. To stand is a military term, picturing a soldier in the heat of battle under fierce attack. Not turning back, not running away. It involves standing one's ground, fiercely, if necessary, resisting. And finally, prevailing victoriously. Standing is not optional. In the same way, it is not optional to be a part of the Lord's army. For all the Lord's people are enlisted. But now, with a Roman soldier very likely chained to Paul while he dictates the letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul begins to detail the six main pieces of a soldier's equipment. The belt breastplate, boots, shield, helmet, and sword. Beginning with verse 14, we can see the truth as a belt. Rome owed the success of its greatness to its army in large part. In Paul's day, Rome had a standing army of approximately 200,000 soldiers. And integral to Rome's military greatness was its state-of-the-art weaponry and armor. And perhaps the most foundational and important piece of the armor was the belt that every Christian or every Roman soldier would put on over his tunic before putting on any of the other pieces of the armor. And every other piece of the armor was dependent on that belt being firmly fastened. So this, this central, this, this critical core piece of the armor here, Paul likens to the, the Christian's relationship to the truth. Winston Churchill once stated, in war, truth is often the first casualty. And you can imagine if a soldier or his entire company were to be deceived in battle, led in a certain direction, lives would certainly be lost perhaps even the entire mission. In our day, it's commonplace to hear expressions like, you know what, you speak your truth and I'll speak mine. And we just walk away from that as if that made sense. It doesn't. And yet we live in a day where that's understood. However, the most pertinent background to Paul's image here is his allusion to a coming Messiah. And Paul clearly echoes the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 11. He, Messiah, will be girded with righteousness around the waist and bound with truth around the sides. And just as we have put on the Lord Jesus and are united with him in every way, we, like him, must gird ourselves about with truth on every side. 
Every believer is to strap themselves about with truth so they know the voice of the Good Shepherd. They know who their commander is in the midst of warfare. And then they are able to act in accord with that truth. We see next righteousness depicted as a breastplate. Paul refers to the breastplate of righteousness in verse 14. And once more, he draws on Isaiah 59, where Isaiah notes how Yahweh, the divine warrior, wears the breastplate of righteousness. So God's own righteousness, God's own righteousness, is meant to defend believers from various blows in spiritual combat. Putting on righteousness means we show in real time who we know Jesus has declared us to be, especially before the accuser of the brethren. And we bear out a life of righteousness and holiness as a witness that his life is indeed in us. Next, we see a preparation to share the gospel as shoes or as boots for our feet in verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So this third piece of the armor that believers are to put on is to ready themselves to share the gospel, which contains the message of peace with God. So once again, illusions abound from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 52, we read, How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good tidings, who publishes peace. So a Christian soldier whose feet are prepared and ready to share the gospel of peace is a a soldier who knows just how devastating this is to the kingdom of darkness. For it is through the heralding the proclaiming of the good news of Christ crucified and risen, that the Spirit grants new life through that most powerful word. It's a convicting thought for all of us as we are all called to be prepared to this end. Are we ready? Are we eager? Are we willing to share the gospel of peace when God gives opportunity? This is one of the reasons why our time together as home groups throughout two-thirds of the year is so critical that we not think it's only for sermon application time. It is to hold one another accountable that we are readying ourselves for spiritual warfare with the third piece of the armor, holding one another accountable. Who is God leading you to? Who, by God's grace, do you need to move toward in faith that God is working through you and in them? How can we hold one another to this end? This is why we're devoting a a month, the month of June, on Wednesday nights to training and teaching specifically geared towards improving our readiness to give a defense for the hope that lies within us, as the Apostle Peter says. This verse, even as late as last night, was streaming through my mind as I was wrapping up a few outside tasks in the yard, and there was a new neighbor that moved in just behind us. I'd seen him out and about a little bit here and there, but he was seated in such a way and in such an angle that I knew I, this, is a, this is a clear opportunity. And now he's waving, and I'm walking over to the fence. And the temptation was present in my heart to get back to the tasks. I have too many things going on. I'm in the middle of all this and this. 
It's a sermon tomorrow, by the way. (laughs) And the temptation was then there as the conversation unfolded to just give a few platitudes, a few kind of trite, kind phrases and wrap things up. But in the Lord's providence, the, the conversation turned spiritual very quickly. And it meant a longer conversation. And the Lord brought this text to mind. Our readiness. Are you ready? You never know what I'm up to, what timeline I have for you. But are you ready to share the hope of Christ, the gospel of peace? So may God help us as an assembly to advance the mission of Christ's kingdom through feet that are ready to walk over to a neighbor's doorstep or to inconvenience our busy schedules and to offer to grab a cup of coffee with a friend or a coworker, whomever God brings your way. In verse 16, we see the next piece. Faith as a shield in verse 16. In all circumstances, Paul writes, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress draws heavily on themes from Ephesians chapter 6. But perhaps nowhere more clearly than when Christian meets Apollyon. Apollyon straddles the path in his fierceness, making vicious and terrible threats against Christian and assuring him that he is about to die. And Christian looks at him and says, Apollyon, beware what you do, for I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, take heed to yourself. And Apollyon replies, he says, I am void of fear in this matter. Prepare thyself to die, for I swear by my infernal den that thou shalt go no further. Here will I spill thy soul. And with that, he threw a flaming dart at his breast. But Christian had a shield in his hand with which he caught it and so prevented the danger. In this famous battle royale, Christian stands in the evil day by taking up his armor, especially his shield of faith, to protect him against Apollyon's arrows. The Old Testament frequently refers to the Lord himself as a shield, protecting his people from all kinds of perilous situations. However, nowhere in Scripture or Jewish literature is faith likened to a shield, but in this text. Roman shields in their day were quite impressive. The Roman historian Polybius describes them as having a convex surface that was two and a half feet wide and four feet in length, consisted of two planks of wood glued together, and on the front covered once with canvas and a second time with calfskin. And the bottom, the bottom and the top were protected with iron edging to resist direct blows. So it goes without saying that if you're motivated enough to carry that thing into battle, it better be valuable. It better do something to help you. Similarly, the Christian soldier parries the flaming darts of Satan through a continual life of faith in the promises of God. Faith in the promises of God. Let's keep in mind the whole armor is to be taken up by every Christian. We're not told to just grab the piece that suits you the most, the one you really like and fits really well. 
or the one you're really gifted for, the one that comes really naturally to you. It comes as a whole, and each piece is vital. It is easy to live with a peacetime mindset, but it is not easy for us, especially in our culture, especially in our land, to live with a wartime mentality. But what confidence we can have that if we use this armor, it will allow Christian soldiers to stand. It will allow us to persevere in the fight. We see in verse 17, salvation depicted as a helmet. The fifth piece is the helmet of salvation. Once again, Paul appears to be drawing on the prophet Isaiah's words in Isaiah 59, 17, regarding God the divine warrior who puts the helmet of salvation upon his head. So Paul has already called the Thessalonians to put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. And here to the Ephesians, he calls them to appropriate their identity as saved men and women in Christ. The Roman soldier's helmet was typically made of hard bronze or iron. An inside lining of felt or sponge made the weight bearable. But it's been said that nothing short of an axe or a hammer could pierce it. If unprotected, the head could easily receive a fatal blow in battle. And while Satan cannot deliver a death blow to the soul, he loves to deeply wound the mind. And in spiritual warfare, our minds must be instantaneously ready to recount God's saving grace. And like Moses who told Israel as they were doubting God's ability to save them on the shores of the Red Sea, he said, fear not, stop, and see the salvation of the Lord. It's happening now. And faith in the promises of God led God's people to salvation. Finally, in verse 17, ends up with the call to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. No Roman soldier would dare engage the enemy without his sword. With the shield, he might quench the fiery arrows, and with the helmet, he might be able to withstand blows to the head. But without a sword, it would be impossible to advance or even to hold the ground entrusted to him. Any soldier caught without his sword would soon be a defeated soldier or a dead one. The sword carried by Roman infantrymen would have been a short sword capable of quick thrusts and high mobility. Similarly, the Christian is to have the word of God on his tongue, ready to slay a lawless thought or a wayward hunger as soon as it arises in the soul. Or from the evil one. The only offensive weapon in the Christian's spiritual armor is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And as a church, we've just concluded in recent weeks a sermon series on the Word of God. So I ask you, do you all appreciate all the more the value, the take-home value the literally right now and as you walk out these doors and throughout your week, the relevance for you to appropriate that word in real time. 
Do you long to follow the example of our Lord in the temptation narrative where he continually counters Satan's deceitful schemes and fiery darts with, it is written. The word at work. Do you agree with the psalmist? I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. As Christian is engaged in mortal combat with Apollyon in Pilgrim's Progress for more than a half a day, Bunyan writes, and at the moment when Apollyon believes he is about to strike Christian down once and for all, Bunyan writes, Christian nimbly stretched out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. Quoting Micah 7, 8. And with that, gave Apollyon a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one that had received his mortal wound. As we tie together these thoughts and consider how it is that the Lord's army, his spiritual war church, is to wage spiritual combat in such a way that allows us to stand in the evil day. I think it is first and foremost and most fundamentally crossing this barrier that we must first and foremost awaken, awaken to the reality of spiritual warfare. That was assumed in a world, even just a number of hundred years back. Take the medieval world, for instance. Everything was was spiritual. There were demons, there were witches, there, were, there was a, an enchantment about the world. That day is not ours. To speak and then to live in these categories causes us to run against the stream of popular opinion. So awaken, brothers and sisters, to the reality of spiritual warfare. Neil Postman's classic 1985 work, Amusing Ourselves to Death, has perhaps never been more spot on than in our day. He asked the question, who will stand up against a sea of amusement? Who will take up arms when everything is met with a giggle or a laugh? I would say a great many of us are enslaved by entertainment a willful, coma-like inducement of our minds where the most pressing spiritual questions of life, the heavy matters of heaven and hell and spiritual warfare, we consider briefly perhaps in this space and time on a Sunday morning, but, but quickly are dismissed as we think of just how much easier it is on the mind. It's, it's stressful to think about these things. And how much easier it is to just stream one more season of that favorite show. And there we go, back into our coma. Brothers and sisters, that is wholly running in the direction opposite to Paul's counsel here. To stay alert, to stay awake. It's as if we hear General Eisenhower's rousing speech calling for bravery on the beaches of Normandy. And we, the soldiers, raise our hands and just say, but are we really at war? I mean, can I just ask that fundamental question? 
are we sure Nazis exist? Like, really? I just feel like I should present that question. Right? That is sometimes where we are, spiritually speaking, when it actually, the rubber meets the road in our lives. We must awaken to spiritual warfare. And if this is you, perhaps you must return to that foundation of who is Jesus and will I place my entire trust for life and death and eternity in His capable arms? Perhaps some of us have deceived ourselves and, and deceived others by wearing a combat uniform that looks a lot like we are in the Lord's army, but we are actually not. There are always tares among the wheat. There is always the mixed multitude within the gathered assembly of the Lord. If this is you, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Know the joys of living under the true King of heaven and not your own. If you are not on the Lord's side this morning, you wouldn't even claim to be wearing the military outfit. You are invariably on the side of Satan, his rulers, authorities, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. They are your boss. And you must know there is no guesswork as to who will win in this battle. None. Even Satan knows that his doom is sure. And he could care less how many he deceives into joining his ranks while Hades' gates buckle under the power of God's gospel. So brothers and sisters, put on the armor of God so you may be able to stand and not fall when spiritual warfare of all kinds comes your way. And know that when we do fall, even as we have prayed and we seek to pray every Lord's Day, a prayer of confession, that we will get beat up badly in this world. But there is a grace and a mercy and a forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even the most battle-scarred saints here this morning run to the Lord be strengthened in the Lord and in His vast strength, and you'll find rest for your souls. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, James writes, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. May the buckling of Hades' gates motivate us that Christ Jesus is still on the move. He has conquered and he is still conquering the forces of hell and the schemes of the devil. Victory is sure when we prepare for the battle, when we know the enemy, and we fight with divine weaponry provided by Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, We pray that you would strengthen us in your limitless strength. That the power to obey, the power to wage war on a personal level and as an assembly, as a war assembly for the Lord, that this would come from you. That we would not rest on our own laurels, we would not look to our own successes and think we are self-made soldiers. But Father, may we have a courage and a bravery to proceed 
with the army of the Lord in faith. Encourage, provoke, stimulate, rebuke, however your spirit needs to work this morning. We pray that he would do it. Father, may we know the joys of standing in the evil day and that as we look in retrospect, we know we could never have done what we have done without God's grace. May we this week move forward as children who walk in the light, walk in love, controlled by your Spirit, and wear the armor of the Lord. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.